Well, open your Bibles to Romans chapter 9. As we enter into Romans chapter 9, and actually Romans 9, 10, and 11 go together, but there's just no way I can cover them all tonight, and so I'm not going to. Uh, but they go together because what we're going to be dealing with is the nation of Israel. Remember, Paul is in Corinth writing to the church, those believers who are in Rome, that is made up both of Jewish believers as well as the Gentile believers. So you've got this mix that at that time was very unusual and very controversial, very racially tension motivated things. The, the Jews were used to doing things this way, the Gentiles doing things this way, and now they come under the banner of Christianity and they're having conflict in how to understand what it is that's taking place. And Paul now is specifically dealing with the nation of Israel in chapters 9, 10, and 11. In chapter 9, he's going to kind of talk about divine sovereignty. He's going to talk about election and the past, how God has dealt with the nation of Israel and how it pertains to us. Chapter 10, he kind of deals with the present time and he deals with human responsibility. He deals with their rejection of who Christ is. And in chapter 11, he goes and he talks about universal blessing that is future for both restoring the nation of Israel and bringing those us Gentiles in as well. And so he's covering the nation of Israel through these three chapters and he's doing it in a way that is very profound to the people at that time. And, and to grab hold of that we need to understand their mindset and what they are thinking. And to understand what we're going to be reading tonight we have to remember all the things that we've already read. So we're going to start the whole book over again. No, I just want to bear out some of the things that are real important. Paul has explained that both Jew and Gentile are in desperate need of God. That we have all missed the mark. That we have all fallen short from God's glory that we are in need of salvation and that salvation cannot be earned. That salvation is given by faith in Jesus Christ. He's gone on to explain to us how God has brought this about to the Gentile nation. And chapter 7 kind of came to the end of himself saying, I have a battle that's going on within me. I am in this struggle. I have the Spirit of God who I belong to now but I have the flesh that I carry along with me and I battle to do what is right and it takes a victory in the spirit and a death to my own flesh to accomplish this. In chapter 8, we just had the honeymoon. It was how great God is, how merciful God is. He does not condemn us. He is at work within us to produce good in all things and that nothing can separate us from his love. And so with this momentum, explaining God's goodness, and he already touched on how God has already known us, how he has predestined us, how he has called us, 
how he has set us apart and he has glorified us. God has seen us in that, even though it's talking about the past and the future, God sees it in a moment's time. And he sees us in this place. He sees us complete in Christ. And in this context, he moves forward in chapter 9. He starts off and he, he says, I speak the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience confirms it in the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Theirs is the adoption as sons. Theirs the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs, and from them is traced the human ancestry of Christ, who is God over all, forever praised. Amen. We have a, a shift here from talking about nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus to now, I've got to tell you the truth. My conscience confirms I am grieved without end for my brethren. And what he's talking about here is for the Jews. He's talking about who they are and why he is dealing or has sorrow for them. And he gives a number of reasons. He, he talks and he says after these things that his heart is broken and he wishes that he himself could be cursed so that they could come to a knowledge of Christ. This is very similar to what Moses said in Exodus 32, 32 when, when God had said that he was going to start over, forget the nation of Israel, and Moses said, if you can't forgive them, then blot my name out too, because I'm not going on without them. This heart for this people, Paul had this heart. And he gives the reasons why he had, and basically it's two reasons. One is my brothers, my kinsmen, he says in verse 3. They're my people. You know, for some reason, we, we've got this loyalty or this fondness of our nationality. I've never been to Italy but Viva Italia, you know? I mean, I don't even watch soccer, but if, if the Italians were playing, I would root for them. Why? Because I'm Italian. I, I, you know, it's my people. And I, I'm not all Italian. I am part German, you know, and part Indian, too. So I don't know what I am. You know, I'm a little mixed up, but th there's something about us that, you know, we like those things. And those of you who are Hispanic, you know what I'm talking about. When you start talking in your own tongue, yeah, you get proud. I would sell lumber. And if I would go into a lumber company and they spoke Spanish, one of the guys who I worked with spoke Spanish and he'd come in there with me and he'd start talking with them in Spanish and oh, they'd click and they'd, hey, you know, mando, como esta, you know. And it's like, hey, what am I, chopped liver here? I'm the salesman, talk to me. It's like, no, this is my brother here. You know, we speak the lingo, you know, and... There's a common bond. Well, there was a common bond with Paul to his kinsmen. He knew them. He knew their culture. He, he knew their rituals. He knew their beliefs. He knew their heritage. And he goes on and he also talks that 
They are the people of Israel. And he, and he gives a list of things of why they are special. He says in verses 4 and 5, because of the adoption, in other words, the relationship that they had with God. God chose this people to reveal himself. And it takes place throughout the Old Testament. There was a couple of verses I wanted to read. One was Hosea 11, verse 1. It says, when Israel was a child, I loved them. And out of Egypt, I called my son, the Lord says to them. And so he has this relationship with them, that he's adopted them, that they have become his child. It also says that to them was given the divine glory. In other words, the presence of God or the kabod as it was called, the weight of God's glory. When they would travel through the wilderness, there was a cloud by day that represented the presence of God in a pillar of fire by night. It was the presence of God with them. The Shekinah glory in the holiest of holies. And kabod means weight. It's substance. The, the substance and presence of God was there with them. And so to this people, not only were they adopted, but the divine glory was with them. He says also that to them was given the covenants. And these covenants were given to Noah, was given to Abraham and his descendants. It was constantly given to them that through them the Messiah was going to come. And he talks about that later. The receiving of the law, God's direction and correction in their lives was given to this nation, to this people. God had told them what he wants, what his desires are, what his requirements are. And imagine that, the, the God who created heaven and earth has given us divine instruction of how to live. Thou shalt not murder. Thou shalt not bear false witness. Thou shalt not commit adultery. I mean, the Ten Commandments as well as the laws that governed them and all the things that were a part of their society. God said, this is my requirements for you because you are my people. A lot of times that when we're concerned about our children, they're going to go out with their friends and you wonder, what are you going to do? And you tell them, hey, remember, whatever you do, you've got my name. You're a Scotty. When they see you, they're going to think of me too. So whatever you do, you bear my name. Now, I don't know how good that held up, but <laughs> the idea is God is saying, you are my people. I am giving you instruction. What you do represents me. I'm giving you the law. I'm giving you these requirements. And, and I think it's amazing, even to this day, if you think of the nation of Israel and how they conduct themselves, they are held to a standard that isn't held to the Palestinians. See, the Palestinians can be terrorists. They can murder basically innocent people, women, and children. But if Israel were to do that, oh gosh. They are held accountable for that. They are held to a higher standard. You can't act that way. Why? Because you're God's people. You have a different law that you have to abide by. You can't just go and do that. And so there's a different standard even to this day that they're given. 
They were also the temple worship, the services, the promises, the promises of the Messiah, their times of worship in the temple, the patriarchs, the holy heritage of Israel, the descendants, and ultimately the human ancestry of Christ, all these things. And I love how it ends. The ancestry of Christ, who is God over all forever praised. To the nation of Israel was given and entrusted these incredible things. And so Paul's heart is for these people because of these things, because they're his compadres, they're his people, and because to them were given and entrusted all these things concerning the Messiah, Jesus himself. And so this is why his heart is breaking and It's important to note that Paul's heart is broken so much that he does not care about his own state eternally, but he cares more about them, which is ultimately the heart of God. And that's what we're carrying into the rest of this chapter. This is the foundation that we're going to be talking about. All this is about the nation Israel and where they are at at this time how they have rejected the Messiah and how because of their rejection of the Messiah, how there is a judgment that is upon them. And he goes on and he says in verse 6, it is not as though God's word had failed for not all who are descendants from Israel are Israel. Now, what he means by it's not as if God's word has failed. Well, aren't these the promised people? Aren't these God's people? Well, if they're not following God, then God has failed, right? Because this was his people and now they're not believing. So maybe God's failed. And he says, no, that's not the case. For not all who are descendants from Israel are Israel. Now, the word Israel means governed by God. Not all who are descendants of Israel or Jacob, as we know him, are actually governed by God. Not everyone who is a descendant is governed by God. In other words, not everyone who bears this descendant's title has in their heart the right response. And he carries that on further. He says, not because they are descendants are they all Abraham's children. On the contrary, It is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. In other words, it is not the natural children who are God's children, but it is children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. For this was how the promise was stated. At the appointed time, I will return and Sarah will have a son. And so Paul's giving a little bit of history and explaining something that we, I think, can relate to. Not everyone who is a descendant really is surrendered to God. And we need to remember that as followers of Christ. Not everyone who calls themselves a Christian is actually a Christian. The name doesn't mean anything. It's your relationship with God. Ku Klux Klans call themselves Christian, but boy, I don't know where they get their doctrine. I don't know where they get their beliefs. And if you are in college courses, you'll hear about the, you know, inquisitions or you'll hear about, you know, the, um, uh, 
what is it with the Muslims, the um, Crusades? You'll hear about the Crusades. You know, how the Christians in the name of Christ went and battled to win Christianity in all these areas and did violent things. Well, not everyone who says Christian is Christian. A title doesn't make you the genuine thing. And Paul is saying that's true for this nation of Israel. Just because you were a descendant doesn't mean you belong to God. And we need to remember that ourselves. Just because I go to church doesn't mean I'm a Christian. Just because I was born in a Christian home doesn't mean I'm a Christian. When we went to Wales, we got to minister into one of the schools because we were missionaries from the United States. That's all we had to do to be a missionary, is be from the United States. And we went into the school that was predominantly Muslim. And when we were talking to the kids there, they were amazed when we said we were not born Christians. They said, well, you were in, born in the United States, you're Christian. And we said, no, that's not how it works in Christianity. Christianity is something you become. It's not something you were born into. It is a decision of the will that you make not that is given to you or passed down to you as a heritage. And that just boggled their mind. They'd never heard of such a thing. Well, Paul is basically saying the same thing. Not everyone who is a descendant of Jacob is governed by God. And then he, he gives an example. Not everyone who is a child of Abraham is actually part of the promise. And he, he says Isaac was the promised child. And we know from the story, there was Isaac and there was Ishmael. And how God told Abraham, I was going to give you a child. And Abraham said, well, I don't see how that's going to happen. I'm, I'm getting old. If God's going to give me a child, it's got to happen some way. So he went in and slept with his handmaid, Hagar, with Sarah's approval, and had Ishmael who was not the child of promise. In other words, Ishmael was not the descendants that made the nation of Israel. The child of promise was that God told Abraham and he told Sarah when he said, I would come to you in return and Sarah will have a son. And sure enough, it happened. It was late in time, according to Abraham, but it happened, the child of promise. And so there was the child that was of their own doing, their own works, and we have to remember, this is going to be a play in something that Paul's bringing out. And then there was the child of faith, the child of God's promise, which was Isaac. And so Paul is, is telling him not everyone who belongs to the nation of Israel is really what God is talking about as far as being his by their heart and by their beliefs. In verse 10, he, he wants to... He wants to give another illustration because this illustration, both Isaac and Ishmael had the same dad, but they didn't have the same mom. They had different moms. They, they were diverse in that way. So he goes on and he gives another example. Not only that, but Rebecca's children had one and the same father, our father, Isaac. Yet before the twins were born, or had done anything good or bad in order that God's purpose in election might stand not by works, 
but by him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. Now that was unusual. That's not the way it works. It's the older who is supposed to rule over the younger, but that's not the case. That's not what God said. And he says, just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Well, we got to stop there. Now, as we look at the promise and what God is doing, there are a couple of, of things we need to remember and point out. That the promise in Galatians 3.16, it says, the promise was spoken to Abraham and to his seed. The scripture does not say to seeds, meaning many people, but to your seed, meaning one person who is Christ. And so God's promise that was given to Abraham is actually the fulfillment of Christ. It says in Romans 4.16 that we read earlier, therefore the promise comes by faith so that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring, not only those who are of the law, but those who are of faith of Abraham. He is the father of us all, where we saw the Gentiles were a part of that. And so the promise and faith are a big part of what Paul is talking about here. He's talking about a faith and a trust that comes from God. And if his reasons for Abraham weren't enough, he goes on and he talks about Jacob and Esau. Had the same father, different mothers, but God gave favor or preferred Jacob. I comparatively hated Esau to Jacob. And it's important to understand that this was an idiom that was used. This, this was something that was used, well, I love the one but hate the other. It's kind of something that Jesus said, no man can serve two masters. He will either hold to one or the other. He will love one and despise the other. And so you can't love them both. And so God is talking here not just about the individuals, but about what they represented. One represents the promise of God, one does not. One represents the blessing of where the Messiah would come, the other does not. And he's bringing this to bear. And he calls these examples and make, Abraham makes, and just as the works, just as it's not by works but by faith that leads to justification, it's God who admits that the promise is the same thing as by faith. In other words, it is by trusting in what God has said that we are going to be brought into that place. God is choosing how this is going to work. He is deciding how salvation is going to take place. And he is saying that the calling and the faith are similar. Faith is a positive response to God's call, which is what Abraham did. And so God has given an example. This is what I want to do. I have chosen Jacob, not Esau. I love Jacob, not Esau. Jacob is the child of promise. I have called him. I have chosen him. That's who my seed is going to come from. Who's the seed? Christ. He goes on and he says, what then shall we say? 
is God unjust? I mean, he just said that he loved Jacob, but he hated Esau. Is God unjust? And he says, not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Now, let me keep you from getting frustrated. There is no way and no place in here where Paul explains God's sovereignty and man's free freedom to choose. And we will look in vain to try and find it here. And I, I'm not going to try and find it because Paul doesn't even try. He just tells us this is how it is. And we sit there and scratch our heads and we will. We will scratch our heads by the end of the study. We'll say, I'm not sure I get it all. Join the club. You and everyone do not understand the complexity of who God is. We never will. If we could, he would probably be someone we made up. But God is greater than that. But what Paul is going to do is give us an understanding of what God has done to reach out to the nation of Israel and how they have failed to respond to what God has done. And he starts here to explain that where he says, God told Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. Mercy cannot be earned. It has to be given. Okay? You cannot earn it. It can only be received in faith and gratitude. God determines the terms upon which he will receive us into his favor. It's up to God. If it was something you could earn, it wouldn't be mercy. God says, I will show mercy on whom I show mercy. It, it's up to me to make the rules here. I'm God. I have the right to do that. Now, we're going to respond like I know some of our, our thoughts already are responding. Well, that's not fair. He already said, that's not right. Is that fair? That's not just, hey, you got to understand. If God's going to give mercy... It's going to be on his terms and how he gives mercy. It's not up to me. And the context is, it's not what I can do to deserve it. It's how God chooses and God has chosen by faith and belief in Christ. You see, we're not talking about God saying, well, I'm going to make it so you can't come. God is saying, this is how you're going to come. You're going to have to believe by faith. And I have shown this to you through the promises that were given to Abraham, through my choosing of the promise of Jacob. And I'm telling you ahead of time, just so you know, this is how I work. It is by faith. You have to believe in me by faith. That, how, that is how the mercy is given, by believing in the promise not by earning it, not by doing the good deeds you think you need to, but by trusting in the one I have sent. Not everyone who's a descendant actually is governed by me, only those who receive my son. He goes on and he says, it does not therefore, verse 16, depend on man's desire or effort but on God's mercy. You ought to mark that because that is central to everything that he is talking about. 
It does not, therefore, depend on man's desire or effort, but on God's mercy. Now that is either good news for you or bad news for you. You see, if you are engulfed in a religion that is all about your rules, your regulations, your rituals, about your being a descendant of, then this is bad news. Because what do you mean? All those things that are I'm doing, all these things I'm trying to do to earn God's favor, that's not what he's looking for? You know, being a descendant of Abraham, that's not enough? And he's saying, no. It's not by your effort, it's not by what you desire, but it's by God's mercy. The question then is going to come up, well, is God merciful? And we know that he is. That's why the whole past of this book is so important, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. When we were in a place rejected, when we were as far away as we could be, he extended his love for us. Remember, that's where we are. So we're talking about God's mercy. Is he merciful? Yes. Last chapter, we explained just how good he is, that nothing can separate us from his love. And it's not by what we desire or by our efforts, but by God's mercy. That should be good news to you, unless you want to do it your way. Then it's bad news. Because he will show mercy on whom he shows mercy. His grace will be given to those who understand what he has done and that it's not about their efforts, but it's about his mercy. And if you want to make it about you, then you're going to miss the boat. You're, you're not understanding what he has already done. Verse 17, he goes on, For the scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up. For this very purpose, that I might display my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. One of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us? For who will resist his will? But who are you, O oh man, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to him who formed it, Why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for noble purposes and some for common use? What if God, choosing to show his wrath make and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath, prepared for destruction? What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory, even us, whom he also called not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles? Okay, let's talk about this. I love how Paul answers what we all are thinking. Okay, the scriptures talk about Pharaoh, I raised you up for a purpose, that I might display the power. In the same way that God raised up Pharaoh and used him as an example that would allow God's glory to be seen by delivering the nation of Israel, the nation of Israel was now in that place 
where they were rejecting the Messiah and God was going to use their rejection to develop within the nation those who really belong to him, those who would follow after Christ. Now, Pharaoh hardened his heart and then God hardened Pharaoh's heart, we're told, throughout the book of Exodus. We, we see this example that takes place. And it's important to see in verse 22, what if God choosing, choosing to show his wrath and make his power known bore with great patience? What is he bearing patience for? If he's, wait, if he's bearing, it's, that's something you do when someone is going against you. In other words, I'm bearing with great patience. I, I want to judge this, but I'm waiting for the right time. I'm not just acting, I'm dealing with it. You see, it does not say that Pharaoh was predestined to choose the wrong way. It does say that God used Pharaoh in his choices to do what he wanted to accomplish. Now you might say that's a fine line, but there is a line there. Because you will never see anything that says God predestines someone to hell. Why would he tell us to choose if we didn't have a choice? But if we will make our choice against God, he will use us to make his point known, which is what he did with Pharaoh. Pharaoh chose not to release the people of Israel, and so God sent the plagues. There was the lice, there was the frogs, there was the, the killing, finally, of the firstborn. Why? Because Pharaoh would not relinquish. And so God says, I'm going to use you as an example. God was doing the same thing with the nation of Israel. He was rejecting them because they rejected him. The judgment fell on them because they rejected the truth. And so now God was making a point and saying, I have the right to do this because all along it's been by faith. All along it's been by the promise. You have tried to make it something else and it doesn't work that way. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And I will harden who I harden so that I can make my point known. And I did it to Pharaoh. And remember Paul's heart and being, I would give my own soul if I could see my brothers come to Christ. Because now they are in the same position, those who had rejected that Christ is the Messiah, those who were descendants of Abraham, but yet were not of the promise, because they rejected Christ, the seed. I am broken for them because you are now fitting into the same role that Pharaoh fat in, fit in. Fat in, that doesn't work. <laughs> you are playing that same purpose. God is now rejecting you because of where you stand. This should make us think, where do we stand? 
Where is our position with God? Are we understanding what his promise is, what his mercy is, or are we resisting it? And by resisting it, we are incurring his wrath, his judgment. Because God's not going to change his mind to satisfy what we think should happen. He didn't do it with Pharaoh, and he didn't do it with the nation of Israel when they didn't receive the Messiah. And so Paul is letting them know God isn't going to change. But he will use where you're at to accomplish his purpose and to make his ways known, you can endure his wrath. In verse 25, he says, as he says in Hosea, I will call them my people who are not my people. And I will call her my loved one who is not my loved one. Who's he talking about? He's talking about the Gentiles. I will call them my people who are not my people. Well, what do you mean? How can they not be your people? They're, they're not descendants naturally of Abraham, but they are descendants of the promise. Just like Isaac was a promise. He was not just some, a child born naturally. He was divinely promised to Abraham. He was a promise of faith. Believe in me. I'll give you a son if you believe in me. Jacob was favored by God, even though he wasn't the firstborn, even though he wasn't the one who was naturally to be the preeminent one. God chose him before he was even born. Now, we have hindsight. We know that Esau was kind of a, he sold his birthright for food. You know, how much do you care about your heritage and your promise as being the, the firstborn of a son? I'll, I'll sell it for some porridge. Now, God knew that. We just found it out. And so it's easy for us to look back and say, well, that makes sense. No wonder God picked him instead of him. And Jacob had his own problems. Get me wrong. You see, in all this, what we should be understanding is that how could God, it isn't how could God be so mean, it's how could God be so merciful? That's really the point. It's not that, man, God's mean. Look what he did to Pharaoh. Man, God's mean. Look what he did to you know Esau. No, it's, wow, God is merciful. Look what he did to Jacob. He chose him, even though he was Jacob. And it should be the same with us. Wow, God is merciful. Look at what he did for me. He gave his son for me, even when I was a sinner. And so our perspective of how we come to this is really important, that we understand that God is really extending himself, reaching out to us when he didn't have to. 
he's, he's trying to get our attention when we're looking the other way. And it's not that God is the bad guy and we have a better way. It's God is merciful. And he's shown mercy. And who are we to, to tell him, why did you do it that way? And, and he gives that illustration of, can the clay say to the potter, why did you make me like this? And that picture is just stupid. But we do have the ability to say, why? We do question, how could you allow this to happen? Or why would you do that? We do have the ability where the clay doesn't. And, and you know, what strikes me is what we really think about and how we detach the reality of life around us and who we really are. Even the things that we are afraid of. You know, you might be afraid of spiders or, or snakes or earthquakes or, you know, hurricanes. I mean, you might have some kind of fear. Oh, I don't like those things. I'm afraid of that. Do you realize that you are on a, a ball that is spinning through space? That at just the right distance from the sun... It's hurling through other planets are going by and meteors and things going. And you're on this ball spinning throughout space. And if we get too close to the sun, we're all fried. And if we get too far, we're all frozen. But we're still just spinning out there. You want to be scared. That's what you should be afraid of. <laughs> and here we are on this ball spinning thinking... Why did God make me like this? That's not fair. He shouldn't do that this way. He shouldn't do that this way. And it's like, you want to run things? You want to take over? You want to you determine how fast this world should be spinning and how far we should be from the sun and where all these other planets should be aligned and the moon the right distance and, and the whole ecological system, the trees that produce the carbon dioxide that we need or the oxygen that we need so that we can produce the carbon dioxide that they need. You want to be in charge of all that? Who are you to say, why did you make me this way? We need to think things a little clearer. Who we really are. What is man that you are mindful of him? And so, Paul is trying to bring an understanding of God has had a plan all along. We need to recognize that it's his plan, and we re need to recognize that he is God. He's just shown that everything depends on God's purpose and election and not on our own works. He talked about that in verse 11, and he tells us that mercy cannot be earned, that it has to be received in faith and gratitude, that God determines the terms upon which he will receive us into his favor. Isaiah 55, verse 7 and 8, it says, Let the wicked forsake his way, and the evil man his thoughts. Let him turn to the Lord, and he will have mercy on him. And to our God, for he will freely pardon. For my thoughts, well, what's great about that is, is right after he tells us that this is what you need to do to receive mercy, is you need to turn. Isaiah 55 
verse 7 and 8. You, you need to turn to him. Turn to the Lord and he'll have mercy on you. Call on his name. He'll, he'll pardon you freely. And then he goes on, he says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. I love that. Then he adds, verse 9, As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Perspective is important. Especially when you start talking about the sovereignty of God. The God having the ability to do what he wants to do. But what we're talking about, what does God want to do? He wants to show mercy. That's what he wants to do. We just saw that. It does not depend on man's desire or effort, but on God's mercy. It depends on God's mercy. And so God is sovereign. He can do whatever he wants. What does he want to do? He wants to show mercy. But it has to be on his terms because otherwise it just isn't going to work. And we can say, well, why not? Why can't it work my way? You want to be God? You want to decide how it works? You want to be in charge? You think you really have a better way? And Paul says, it's not going to happen. This is how he's decided to do it, and it's going to happen the way he decides it's going to happen. And so, having that perspective of mercy first, we see then that Pharaoh and wrath, a nation of Israel and rejection, when God all along was trying to produce mercy. He was trying to save his people. He's trying to produce his people. He's trying to bring these things about. Verse 26, he says, And it will happen in that very place where it was said to them, You are not my people. They will be called sons of the living God. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel. Though the number of the Israelites be like the sand of the sea, only the remnant will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence on earth with speed and finality. It is just as Isaiah said previously, unless the Lord Almighty had left us descendants, we would have become like Sodom. We would have been like Gomorrah. The problem isn't God's wrath. The problem is man will not receive God's mercy. And unless God was extending out that mercy, they would have missed the boat completely. And the same is true for us. It amazes me why people will resist the love of God that has been demonstrated through the person of Jesus Christ. It, it amazes me. And what they will take in exchange for it. The life that they will live in exchange for a life that God says, this is what I have for you. God has forgiveness. God has mercy. You know, the, the things that are given to us to, to abide by in Scripture are given to us 
for a reason. They're given to us for our benefit, for our health, for our sanity. And people resist that and say, well, I want to live my own way. And you think, okay, what way is that? Well, I, want to, I want to have a good time. I want to party. I don't want to have to be you know, bound to just one woman or one man. I want to be able to sleep around. And we have diseases that come from that. And we have unwanted children that come from that. And we have the devastation of families that come from that. And we have the turmoil emotionally that comes from that. And we don't understand that, you see, God was designing us for a reason, and it's for your own benefit that you live this way. You know, I just want to party. I, want, I like to drink. I like to have a good time. And, and we see the, the damages that alcohol does to the liver, that it does to the brain, that it does to families, that it does to people trying to keep jobs, that it does to so many areas of society and we don't see that when the scriptures say not to be drunk but to be filled with the Holy Spirit that it's for our benefit that God is actually trying to give us a better life not just put rules to, to hinder us or to make us not have a good time but we resist what God has given us and we say, no, I want to do this my own way. I want to have my fun. I want to be king of my castle. I want to do this my way. And then we wonder why the judgment comes upon us and why our lives are examples of what not to do instead of examples of what to do. And we shake our fist at God saying, God, how, why would you, you know, why do you do this to me? Why did you make this way? And it's like, you know, now he's become someone that you can go to and accuse when you need to. It's amazing to me. People will bring God out of the closet just to bring accusation when something bad happens. It's almost like, well, I need someone to blame now, so I'll bring God out. You know, oh, look at, how could, if God was so good, how could there be so much evil in this world? Okay, you win. There's no God. Now who's responsible for the evil? Oh, now we have to be responsible for ourselves, and now we really see the picture clearly. Uh, really, it was ourselves all along. God's been trying to save us. He's been reaching out to us, trying to bring us back. And so here, the nation of Israel is in a place where they have said, Jesus, we don't want anything to do with him. He's not our Messiah. We're going to continue to follow our own rules, our own regulations, and the way we see the law needs to be interpreted because they didn't interpret it correctly. And by doing so, the wrath of God rests upon them. They are judged. Why? Because God doesn't love them? No. But because they would not receive his mercy that they were, would not see the promise, that they were not actually descendants of Abraham according to the promise, that they were just naturally descended. And they thought, that's enough. That's all I need. And he says, no, that's not what it was intended to be at all. My desire for you all along was that you would recognize that it is by well, how were we to recognize that? Did you see what I did with Abraham? 
This was before the law. He believed me, and he was counted as righteous. What I want you to do is believe in the promise that I am giving you the Messiah. But instead of believing the promise, they believe the rules, the rituals, and they miss the Messiah. The same thing can happen to us if we're not careful. We can make Christianity a new form of Judaism. If we are not careful, if we don't recognize that it is by faith in Christ alone that this promise comes, and pretty soon we start making our own rules, our own regulations. You know, to be a Christian, you have to dress this certain way, or you have to go to church this many times, or you have to follow these rules and regulations. That's what it takes. Otherwise, you cannot be a part. And we start putting our emphasis on the things and on the works, and we forget that it's not by the desires or your efforts, but it's by the mercy of God, period. And pretty soon, Christianity becomes a hybrid of Judaism, which was what Paul was fighting against here. You see, even though Judy, Christianity came from Judaism, Judaism was almost the death of Christianity. And not really because God was going to accomplish it anyway, but I think you know what I mean. It had the potential to bring Christianity out of the place of promise and into the place of rituals and rules and regulations. And that's not what it was about. And Paul's saying, God is not going to be put into this place. He is going to show mercy and he's extended this mercy to us, the Gentiles. We need to recognize that that God has given us this. And it's his promise, that he had promised it all along. And if you wouldn't believe it, you were going to find yourself on the bad side. And we don't want to be on that place. Yeah, I didn't get through 9, 10, and 11, just <laughs> fighting my way through chapter 9 here. Um, any questions just about sovereignty, about some of the things that we talked about? I don't know that I can answer them, but uh, I can try and give you what I see that's taking place. Or on the things that we read, is there any questions about what Paul is saying that you may be having a hard time understanding? You know, one of the, I guess, main points Paul is saying is history is not going to be controlled by man exercising his will but it's going to be controlled by a merciful God. That God was not going to allow man to decide how God works, but he was going to show his mercy and direct man how he wills. And so even when man says, I'm going to do things my way, God can take that and say, you do what you want, I'm still going to accomplish my will. Like he did with Pharaoh, like he did with the nation of Israel, like he will do with us. He is still going to extend mercy. He is still going to accomplish what he wants. And we can either get on his team or lose. That's really the choice. And think about it. Doesn't that make sense? Just remember where you're at. You're on the ball, spinning around the sun. <laughs> Whose side do you want to be on? It only makes sense to be on God's. Okay. Well, let's pray. Father, I know I, my head was going in circles trying to just think of what I was going to share 
here tonight in dealing with sovereignty and mercy and wrath and, and where where do we fit in this and what are you trying to do in all this and Lord, I still don't understand fully, and I doubt I ever will until I'm with you, but God, what I do understand is that you are merciful. What I do understand is that you do care, and that you have always been inclusive and not exclusive. It was never the members-only club with the nation of Israel. Your, your purpose all along was to extend to the Gentiles, to us. And your intentions are still to extend to those who are outside of the church. You are still extending mercy. And Father, may we not block that. May we not put walls between your mercy and people. May we not put religion between your mercy and people. Father, if a, a man or woman will turn to you, they can receive mercy. And Lord, that's what you ask, is that we turn to you, the God who created the heavens and earth, the God who is at work in human history and uses circumstances and nations to accomplish his will and they cannot resist. Lord, may we not resist. May we turn to you and make that decision to follow after you and fall on your mercy. Lord, I pray that would be true for all of us here tonight. And I do ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.